Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is J. Miles Dale, a veteran Toronto producer whose credits include Bruce McDonald's Pontypool, Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and most recently Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, which, and I still can't believe I'm about to say this, just won the Oscar for Best Picture on Sunday night, along with Best Director, Best Original Score, and Best Production Design. Obviously, I grabbed him before he left for L.A. Miles picked The Big Lebowski, Joel and Ethan Cohen's delirious 1998 reinterpretation of film noir, with Jeff Bridges as perhaps the least qualified detective in the history of cinema, a man named Jeffrey Lebowski, a.k.a. The Dude, who stumbles through a complex web of corruption and treachery in the name of replacing his rug. And of course, he's just one of the magnificent eccentrics with whom the Coens have populated the film. The glorious cast includes Julianne Moore, John Goodman, Steve Buscemi, John Turturro, Peter Stormare, Sam Elliott, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and many, many more, all bouncing off each other like bowling pins scattered by, like, a really big ball. Ah, you know what I mean, man. This is someone else's movie. I love the Coen brothers, so it could have been really any of their movies. It could have been any one of a number of movies. But, um... I find that this is the one that sort of tickles me the most. This is the one I can watch again and again and again. This is the one I like to show people. I like to watch with other people. Yeah. Um, which invariably, I find it funnier than they do the first time. And then <laughs> they're, they'll call me back the next year and say, hey, I watched that movie again and it's really good. Um, I find with the cones, they have the rare ability to mix... Um, comedy and extreme pathos and it is I think the hardest thing to do Uh, so I'm always in awe of that this movie is kind of their screwball you know comedy where it's it's a little looser than all of that so it certainly doesn't have that kind of dramatic tension of even uh, you know you know Fargo and Burn After Reading are you know two great examples where you know the, the 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 comedy sadness line is just a, a very thin line, right? Um, and, and this I feel it's looser. It's a lot more um, uh, slapstick, if you will. But you know the 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 Raymond Chandler of it all is all very interesting. You know where where you know as uh, uh, you, you know where it's a little less plot and a little more fun and yeah. and and going off the beaten track to things that you know you. Uh, you aren't expecting and you're saying, where's this going? And maybe it doesn't even go anywhere, but it was a fun time, you know? So I just, it's the one that I keep going back to. And, you know, I'm not in any of those fan clubs or anything, but I sort of understand them. Yeah. I, I have to admit for me, I was one of the guys that just didn't think it was all that great. Um, I, I, my, my relationship with the Coens through the nineties was really up and down. I loved the first three films really didn't like Barton Fink. I get it. I just don't enjoy it. Uh, then they made the Hugsucker Proxy, which made me violently angry. Right. Then Fargo, and it's like, oh, no, 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 this is what they do. Right. And then they went right back to sort of arch uh, non-realism or whatever whatever the Big Lebowski is, which right. is their version of the Altman version of The Long Goodbye, right? And I, that's right. Just, they even quote the opening sequences right. the same way. Uh, and I just found it really frustrating. And I also had the misfortune of seeing it at a packed screening where nobody got it. Right. So it just played to silence. Right. That's uh, interesting. Because it was early. It was a preview. Nobody knew how to process it. It was, right. from the, you know, the new film for right. the people. It's who, like the first guys that saw the Rocky Horror Show. I assume, like, yeah, where, yeah. Where am I right what now? What do right? I do with this? <laughs> And it, I did not smoke enough weed yeah. to be able to enjoy this movie the way I should. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. none of their work, like, they just, stoner culture was not something they'd ever really connected to before right. or even tried to interpret. Right, Plus, dazed and confused. Yeah, and, uh, there was a wave of it, but they were outside. Right. Because they were, I think, uh, you know, Fargo is the closest thing they'd done to a contemporary story at that point. Right. Raising Arizona doesn't really count. It's not. Well, again, Raising Arizona was kind of a broad comedy. Yeah, know, yeah, to yeah. Me. So I it's mean, a that, cartoon. Yeah, we, I mean, when you go from Blood Simple to Raising Arizona, I mean, that's a big move. Yeah. And then you go back to um, like the stateliness of Miller's Cross. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, 
Look, I think they, they, they show, you know, as we were talking about Soderbergh, they show incredible range, but their, um, uh, their temperament and certainly their sense of humor and their uh, erudition and intelligence is all right there. So even, you know, with this, you know, I mean, the John Goodman character, obviously based on John Milius, the writer, the crazy gun-toting guy, right. I forget exactly what the line is, but something like, you know, you could say what you want about National Socialism, dude, but at least it's an ethos. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's hilarious, and it's kind of, you know, funny and true. So it's just like some of the lines. And then, you know, once you've watched it a few times, you really kind of fall in love with the dude. You know, I mean, he's got not much going on, but, yeah. you know, you're really kind of, you know, sympathizing with him like a puppy dog. Like, guy just came in and peed on his rug. Like, it just happened to him, you yeah. know? That, so, that was the thing that, that, in the end, ultimately, that was the thing that got me to watch it again when the DVD came out. Uh, I, I had to cover it. I was reviewing it, and I did take another look at it, and it was, oh, okay, I remember it playing, I remember it playing more flat. I don't remember these moments. I certainly, I was really surprised at how much stuff was still there waiting to be right. connected to, I guess. But that's it. It's, so it's become this weird, uh, like a train set. Every couple of years, it'll come back around again. Right, and you see something new. And yeah, and I'm here. I'm, I just feel like I'm on the tracks as it's coming towards me. I right. don't. It's washing over. And right. Like that's the whole thing, right? You just yeah. have to let it flow over you. But I'm not a flower. I'm a much more aggressive engager, and I think that's it. I just had to turn my just turn my experience of it off and let it experience me. Right, right. Which is a weird way. So I see what you mean when you say you want to watch people watch it. Yeah, it, it, and legitimately, like, I remember showing it to my brother and his wife for the first time, and it was crickets, and, yeah. you know, my kids, and, but, you know, I know other people who are like, let's watch it, you know, let's get together and watch it, so, you know, you're just howling, and, you know, it's like, have you got any leads, and, you know, the, 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 the when you watch the TV thing, and Walter smashing the Corvette, and, and you know, he says, you know, what's the, the oh, TV line is, uh, this is what it, yeah. The, yeah, a stranger in the Alps, so... <laughs> Which has become a meme independent of the film. Now. Right, which is crazy niching. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, so it's, it's, there must be something to it. And then I worked with Julianne Moore on Carrie. Oh, right, and right. she had a great entrance on that movie where she comes into the school to get Carrie. And I said to her, Julianne, I will say that's a great entrance, but certainly not your, not number one. If Maude, you know, r- rolling in on the wires. So we had a good laugh about that. But yeah, look, it's always. Uh, and and in fact, I mean, I I found her character is is obviously a little bit broad, but but still sort of interesting, you know. So it's like in the context of the whole thing. I mean, it's like the Sam Elliott character, which is the best. But he he said to uh, he was doing the movie, and he said to the guys, "Go, what exactly am I doing in this movie?" And they go, "We're not really sure ourselves, yeah. but it's like fun." <laughs> So, and I remember reading the script after I'd seen the movie, I got a copy of the script and I read the script and it's like, if you were legitimately reading that script, you'd be thinking, what's going on here? Yeah. But then, you know, they, they, they pull it all together. So, you know, the, 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 I have a strange sense of humor. Like, I'll just say that, like, you've got the Mel Brooks thing there. Sure. It's like, I've seen all that stuff. I saw Blazing Saddles 25 times when I was 15. Like I would go and I'd see the noon, the three, the five, the seven. I would just sit in the theater. I could do the whole movie. So, you know, all that stuff. And um, uh, and the movie I was telling you about, which you must see. Yes. Uh, Enter Laughing, which you must see. Right. This is for The listeners. one movie you haven't seen. Well, for listeners, this is a film we could not include because it's not available anywhere. Right. It was Carl Reiner's uh, directorial debut in 1966. Uh, Quincy Jones did the music. It was semi-autobiographical. Um, you know, Shelley Winters, Don Rickles, Rini Santoni, uh, Michael J. Pollard. It was a crazy, crazy cast. Uh, and very, very funny. Jack Guilford. Um, and again, that was a movie that my parents, are, my brother and I, we would watch that on TV and they would watch us watch it because right. we were so funny. So that's a little echo of the, of that other thing. But uh, and that movie, I found it on VHS, and I had the guys at Deluxe transfer it to a DVD for me, just so I could, you know, give it to my parents so they could see it and not have to wait for it to come around on TV. In any event, you know, it just it it tickles my funny bone in in you know all the right ways, um, even when it goes completely 
uh, off-piste because I think there's something sort of lovable about almost all of those characters. I mean, you know, Goodman's character, the dude, certainly. I mean, that the Philip Seymour Hoffman character, you know, who's yeah. the first lady of the nation. <laughs> you know, it's like, like, maybe not funny to anywhere. I'll just crack up laughing when I hear him say that. You know, dude, we're concerned, you know. It's, um, it's a pinball machine, right? Like, it's a magnificent demonstration of the fallacy of the immovable object and the unstoppable force and all that because for all the things that the dude accomplishes all he really does is interact i don't think he moves the plot right he just happens to trigger action in other people and what happens to donnie what happens to walter all of these things are other people imposing themselves on him right and yeah, he would. I, you're right. And Maud, you and know. Maude, well, literally everyone, right? Yeah. Like he would be perfectly happy to stay in his apartment and yeah. not think, or in his house and not think about this stuff. But someone came in and pissed on his rug, right. and it just sets him in motion to interact with everybody else and annoy them into action. Right. It is uh, that it's the the joke about the the big sleep, right? Like, right. like when they asked Chandler who killed the chauffeur, he said he couldn't figure it out himself. And it didn't really matter. The guy just gets killed. Right. Doesn't uh, matter. Doesn't impa- the, the death is what impacts the story, not the sh- not the chauffeur. And here, I don't even know if you could trace it back that way, but I don't. Th- there is a linear story. It's just not happening to the characters we're following. But it's the same thing. It's like, it's all fake. You know, the, the, the kidnapping's fake. The first money's fake. The second money's fake. Like, it's all... Yeah. Like, really, like in an existential view like nothing happens yeah really we know someone loses a toe right but that's it but it's not even the person we think it is right exactly so it's all i mean to me it's really kind of in a way it's just scenes like it's just sketches of of crazy people doing crazy things Mm. i i mostly appreciate it because i think it's original i just think it's like it stands on its own as something that there's really nothing quite like it and I think also with the Cones, you know, as with, you know, Guillermo and some of the other great filmmakers, there's there's all kinds of, you know, um, uh, ex- existential stuff underneath everything that maybe only they know about. Right. You know, like uh, people can grab onto it, but they're, they're doing a lot of it just to satisfy their own sense of humor, right? Mm. To amuse themselves. They don't really care if anybody else gets it. Yeah. And I think what they think is funny is actually the key to understanding their cinema but I don't know that they're intending us to interpret anything beyond the they thought that was funny point. But they're yeah, if you look over the over the decades, like the rhythm of their jokes becomes really clear and the, the stuff about hats and, and bad luck and wigs and everything in Miller's Crossing, I feel like there's a connection here with all the weird compulsive stuff that Walter does. And again, they probably just find that stuff amusing. Right. But it also becomes uh, a continuum, right? Like it, just because they're going back to these things, and the and the weird repetitions of Santana Abraxas right. in uh, in a serious man, which I think is my favorite of theirs. Yeah, There's, working with Michael Stuhlbarg, I I, I I was like Michael, dude, serious man, <laughs> really. Yeah, I mean, that, again, that was obviously a very personal film for them. Not you know, again, if you're not a Cone Brothers fan, like that just came and went yeah. to closest you. they've ever come to their own lives, their own childhood. Yeah. Right, right. All of that. So again, I feel like a lot of this is probably just catharsis for them for whatever however they're feeling at the time, you know? Yeah. And and I think that that was a part of it. I think that they just thought, okay, this is all gonna be amusing. I mean there's so many inside jokes in the movie with the you know, the John Polito driving the, the Volkswagen bug that's from Blood Simple. And I mean, there's lines that are pulled from their other movies, all kinds of stuff that I, I think a lot of the time they were really just trying to amuse themselves. And again, they're they're good at that. Like, you, you know, in Burn After Reading, like that whole crazy Brad Pitt character, like who could get away with that? Like, like that doesn't play anywhere at any time for anybody ever. And it totally worked in the context of a, a guy who just needed, like, you know, what between him and Jenkins and, and Francis McDormand in that movie, like what they were doing. And yeah. What, what it, it was like, it was, it, it made no sense at all. But so to me, that's like getting like brave, like you're out there on the wire without a safety net with that kind of stuff. And there was, you know, a lot of that in this movie too, certainly. I mean, I think this is John Goodman's, and he's been great in all kinds of Coen Brothers movies. I think it's absolutely his best performance. Because I think it's a brave performance, you know. Yeah. Like when, he, when they come in on the guy with the iron lung, you know, we're, we're big fans, sir, especially the early episodes. <laughs> it's 
it's such a specific thing to say. Right, right? Like exactly. They, they know Walter Sobchak better than, well, better than they know him. Better than yeah, himself, or just but, that that kind of a character who would say that kind of a thing, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. like a... And so it, it's just those kinds of things where it's just, I don't know, it just it just tickles me all the way through. Um, and, you know, the thing with Bunny that's kind of the the parallel, you know, from uh, 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 to have and have not, you know, you, you do know how to whistle, don't you? You know, I mean, yeah. it's so, so there's all that kind of fun inside stuff. But really, for me, I, I just I just laugh. You know, the cop comes up to the car. You know, the guy shits in the back seat. It's like, you know, the dude asks him if he's got any leads. You know, leads, yeah. yeah. A team of detectives working on. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, it's just, it, I, I just feel like it's one of those things. Anything you can watch over and over again, like for me, and there are, you know, many movies. Like, you know, it's like when you, I'm sure somebody's done the Shawshank Redemption on this show. No, not yet. Yeah, Weirdly I mean, enough, I keep waiting for it to come up. Yeah, it seems I mean, like- that, that would have been on the podium for me for sure, but. You know, or, I mean, you know, The Godfather, you know, every time you're changing channels and there are, there are the movies that you stop at yeah. always. And those are a couple of them. This is certainly one. So anything you can just watch over and over endlessly again, there's some reason for it. And and, and this is certainly like that or anything Mel Brooks has done, but certainly the sweet spot of Mel Brooks, the sweet spot of Barry Levinson, you know, the the that, that five-year period, you know, where yeah. he was, you know, on fire. So... Um, so the character stuff that draws you in is it the the sort of the offset genre thing? I, I, I'm I always think, uh, I'm always fascinated by what. Well, the I do are. I do like um, I I do like black comedy because I think it's a it's rare to be able to pull it off. You know, I feel like you know d- dark comedy. It's it's it really requires a very specific. Um, uh, uh, point of view from the filmmaker and I feel it's almost you know the most telling reflection of the filmmaker and and, and, you know what their kind of psyche is and that's why I think the Coens like appeal to me I just feel like they've got that thing where they can do it all it can be very high drama you know um, high stakes tension and you know, side-splitting comedy at the same time, which is virtually impossible. I mean, I can't think of too many other guys who who really can do it that way. So for me, like that's that's part of it with them. But I also find even in the performances, I watch the performances and I see little subtleties every time. You know, I mean, and and just you know, scene stealers like Totoro and you know some of those little things where I I feel like those um you know are are inspired you know and and that can't be on the page you know and and so uh, again and with trusted you know Totoro how many movies had he he had already done four movies yeah yeah, I guess he was like in the rep company practically sure so you look at something like that and then the other thing we have talk about is, is the dream sequences yeah which you know in this whole crazy stoner world you know flying around on the carpet the dude's just having a great time and then all the musical stuff and the bowling and and i mean that cinematography you know i know how hard it is to make a movie okay <laughs> yeah and those things that they were doing you know that was pretty decent green screen integration for a low budget movie for its time for guys who had never done any vis effects mm-hmm. Uh, the, the you know that that Busby Berkeley stuff that they had going was crazy. Well, yeah, I was going to say the I tried to explain it to somebody once, not too long ago, maybe five or six years ago. Somebody was talking about the the frog sequence in Magnolia and how that's essentially a music video. Right. And I said, yes, of course, but you know, like the year before, there's a gargantuan thirty five millimeter music video for a thirty year old Kenny Rogers song that no one remembers. And it stars, you know, everybody. Right. And it has bowling in it. And they're just right. like, I don't think he had connected the two at all. But I don't I don't know that you get Magnolia without the Big Lebowski. It's such a weird continuum. Right. Same continuum yeah, I never thought of that, but it's very true. But I can totally see Paul Thomas Anderson, because Boogie Getting Nights... Getting inspired is, by it. Yeah, Boogie Nights and, and the Big Lebowski have so much in common. Yes. I can just see it cross-contaminating somehow. Yeah. So I, I I just remember seeing that for the first time, and it just also blew my mind because it's like, 
okay, just, you know, where this movie had gone into some odd places, now it's going, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now I'm off-piste entirely. So that was very impressive to me. Well, there was nothing in their filmography that suggested that this is where they would end up. Right. Not just the music sequence, but the entire movie. It's so completely unlike them. Yeah. But then no two films of theirs were alike to that point. No, that's true. And even then, I mean, they come next with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which, which interestingly, I thought had some elements, you know, uh, of of that. Like, it, it, well, it felt a thing, little bit yeah. like the son of everything they had done before, you know. And 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 I think Big Lebowski was their first movie with T-Bone, I think. I think you're right. Uh, there wouldn't have been need for it. Because it was all, like, score before that. And, and there were a lot of songs. So I think it was the first, and then obviously... Oh, brother, and then a few others. But so I just remember also thinking, you know, that fantasy with all the bowling and thinking about how they shot that. And and the first time you're not really, but, you know, as a producer and a director, you know, you watch those things and you're thinking, oh, my God, like this was not a big budget movie, but this stuff is time consuming and very specific, you know, and it's not like just two guys sitting in a room or, you know, the dude and the stranger at the bar where you just pull back into the two shot and they talk and then it's over and they never left that two shot yeah well so much of film noir is just conversation right so i just think it's wonderful that their way of exploding it is to just not adhere to those restrictions in any way at all right you know what we're gonna ride around in the car for a while yeah do that that's fine but we're also gonna have a massive musical number right and i i'm sure and i should actually talk because now i've met joel a couple times with francis this year um ask him if they spent a disproportionate amount of time and resources on those things because I think there's just no way to do those you know fast mm-hmm. and half ass and and that was Deacon's I think that was the third one that Deacon's had done with them and yeah, he this... and he he was obviously jazzed by that so yeah that was also kind of a a, a thing we needed where you know just when you think oh this is fun and this and that it goes off into that world you know, and the whole thing with the Jackie Treehorn and the bouncing trampoline with the naked girls in yeah. slow motion. Like, again, it's just like I, I, I appreciate the visuals and, and and they don't, you know, again, there's nothing really arbitrary about any of their coverage even, you know, in terms of camera movement and this and that. And Not so it, it was, it was, it was, it's a treat again, just because it's so, um, just when you think you know where it's going or what might be happening, it just takes you somewhere else. And yeah. that's and that's the thing. You, you know, you love the surprise. And look, in some movies, that can be, by the way, it takes you to a place I don't care and you've lost my interest, you know, which has happened uh, sure. a few times this year, even with some of the more notable films, in my opinion. But uh, uh, that was not that was not one of those. I just thought it, it was a it, it, it has a, a, a real kind of like a, a fun life force to it that uh you know just makes me smile yeah so we haven't even really discussed jeff bridges at all but i I don't want us to slide past the fact that that performance is so incredibly not jeff bridges i mean i've met him that is him right he's he is this he is the dude it's kind of incredible but he is also uh known for such incredible focus as an actor and for this he makes it look easy, but you can always see what's going on. He's a, he's an incredibly demonstrative performer, and to dull himself down and just to, sort of kind of take the smart out of him. Um, weirdly enough, Sam Rockwell does something similar in, in Three Billboards this year. Right. I was thinking about that, and, and they're completely unrelated, mm-hmm. but they both have this instinctive understanding that the only way to sell this character is to hide how smart the actor is. Right, and. Bridges just being befuddled, it turns out, is this amazing comic engine. Yeah. And people are trying to explain things to him and he's not letting it penetrate. I just, I I was stunned when I realized that was going on. Well, it's hard to play a stone guy, you know, and yeah. it's hard, it's like it's hard to play drunk, it's, it's hard to play stone. But I think the, the, the secret there was the, the timing and some of the lines, I'm not exactly sure if there was... I looked at the script and it appeared to me that there was not a lot of improvisation Mm. and those guys are, you know, famously not improvisers, like what's on the page is what's on the page and they write it so specifically. So I just thought, yeah, he showed just incredible comic timing. It's funny. I think of the Sam Rockwell character as being not that smart. I don't feel like the dude is dumb. I just feel like he's out of it a lot. You know, like he's, he's, he's got a, 
He, he, although no, he's kind of dumb. <laughs> he, he, he's kind of dumb. Um, but really, it was the the thing. It, it was him and Goodman working together too. That that is the fun because those guys, you know, their rhythm together uh, was incredible to me because it's it's so easy for it to just go, you know, over the top and and it didn't. Even when it did, it didn't. You know. And I think Jeff Bridges, I mean, he's a remarkable actor, incredibly versatile. Um, but, yeah, obviously very funny, you know. Yeah. So it's it's nice when guys show you a new color. And, uh, uh, I mean, he definitely did. I'm sure he was the only one in their mind that was going to be able to play that. You know, it's a, they, they, they're very specific about their casting that way. And he hadn't been in anything for them prior to that, right? No, no, it was his first one. He doesn't. They don't collaborate often. There was that, and there was True Grit, and unless I'm missing a really obvious one, True I don't... Grit. Yeah, I that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. So, so yeah, I feel like you know they're so specific in their casting. You know, the only thing the Steve Buscemi character was a little bit of a um, it, it 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 he he felt like a bit of an add-on. Like that that was the only thing I was like I was wondering was that what they were sort of going for. Was he? Was he? Was he? You know, uh, not really even there in a way. Like the dude never really talks to Steve Buscemi, and Walter really only tells him to shut the fuck up, Donnie. Right. So it's yeah. a. It was, that's a, a little bit of an odd character that I sort of wondered about. Like what? What was the? What was the payoff with Donnie ever? Yeah. And even like when he dies, like you don't really feel that much because you don't really know him. Yeah, I think that was. I think. Like my first time through, I really didn't care about the funeral like right. at the end when they dispose of his ashes. It's well, kind of a quick joke. Great scene, by the way. And I've done that. You know, I've used that line. It is our most <laughs> modest receptacle. Right. I, I will go out of my way to... And by the way, sometimes <laughs> in questionable situations when people have died, you know, where it's a it. funeral, you know... <laughs> Everybody it, needs a release. It, it is our most modest receptacle. Mm-hmm. And the blowing in the wind of the thing. I mean, yeah. you know, I've worked all of that in my life various <laughs> times. But I've come back to it and thought that maybe, I mean, he's he's sort of the only character who isn't, he never gets angry, he never gets hostile, he's really sweet, and right. he just wants to help. And so, if you want to argue that the whole film noir thing is about people chasing the thing that they don't understand and ultimately finding themselves, then all they're doing in this is ignoring him and then realizing what they've lost at the end, because they've only been pursuing stupid, selfish, petty things, and Donnie... He's just not into that. But Donnie, yeah, he's pretty dumb. Right, he's, yeah. I, I think he's dumber than the dude, because right. he's completely... Right. As far as I can tell, he's more or less straight and sober, but he doesn't understand anything. Right. I am the walrus. Yeah. Like, what? But he's just <laughs> quietly yeah. trying to help. Yeah, I sort of think the the thing at the end is also their own mortality, right? Like, I mean, they're, they're, their own mortality is literally being blown in their face. Yeah. So, I mean, th- th- that's kind of cool and funny at the same time. Again, it's like, uh, that's, that's real life coming at you, but... Uh, yeah, I think you know. I mean, all the performances are are really pretty phenomenal. The the whole thing with uh, I mean Julie and David Thewlis. I mean, again, that's I still can't believe he's in that movie. It's such a yeah, no, it's a just strange, a weird place to find him. Yeah, strange piece of guys. Great in Fargo this year. I don't know if you've seen it. No, I know he's in it, but <sighs> mind blowing. Him so and Stuhlbar. So far behind. Um. So yeah, and and the rest of them, you know, and the nihilists. And 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 um, David Huddleston, who just died again, like a strange piece of casting. Like you, you wouldn't have seen that coming. Mm-hmm. But he is like Huddleston, sort of that Charles Durning quality that they love so much. Yeah, the, the Coens always return to these portly Michael Learner's another one. Right. Yes. Portly he showed an interest. Actors. Yeah, they're just they love that guy, that character who yeah. always shows up. Or Polito. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're. Yeah. Just, they're, they're he's like a comic trope but also a dramatic trope whoever is playing him in this given movie it's always sort of the same character yeah and then the only I was trying to figure out if there is one in, in like Lewin Davis for example it's F. Murray Abraham yeah who is gaunt and, and almost like judging like God in the end yeah it's interesting like Lewin Davis actually I feel like they, they really like eased up on the humor entirely right like oh, it's, it's so sad yeah, yeah yeah I mean beautiful deadpan but yeah, sad but really uh you know, just kind of a, a chronicle more than anything, that movie, right? It's yeah. like just, okay, I'm going to follow, you know, my shoe came off in the snow. I'm just going to follow you around, man. 
Um, but even like Huddleston, like some of those lines, like, you know, I will not abide another toe and right. the stuff in the back of the car and the stuff in the, you know, are you employed, Mr. <laughs> or, you know, what, what yeah. you so like, I, mean, like, I mean, delivered with a straight face. It's like, I, I, it's just so impressive to me that guys can pull that stuff off. Yeah. And Phil Hoffman, like I said, that, mm-hmm. that whole thing and that's pretty early for him right yes yeah, he was just coming up really I mean there was Boogie Nights the year before and right people were starting to know who he was yeah a- a- again I just think like tonally like all those performances ride a line and they are all very brave because it, it's it's just you're one step away from taking people out of the movie with every one of those performances yeah well I mean with the exception of I would get I would go with Hudsucker where Jennifer Jason Lee is clearly doing the thing they've asked her to do, and it just yeah. makes you wonder why no one else is. It's so specific right. and tonally wrong. Right? Um, they're so they are really good at that. They're yeah. great at establishing mood. They're great at like they'll use they'll do the thing that Soderbergh does in weaponized room tone. They just make you understand the right. environment you're in. Yeah, and somehow they get all the actors to line up. I I always come back to this. Uh, it was an Edgar Wright quote, actually. He was talking about Scott Pilgrim. He said that the trick to making it, and I'm sure you heard this from him a number of times, uh, the trick to getting that movie made is that everybody's pulling on the same rope with the same tension, and right. you have to convince them what the tension is. Right. Yeah. And no, we did talk about that. Yeah. And yeah, because totally, totally if something's off piece... Well, again, the best example... I mean, Brad Pitt in Burn After Reading. There's no version of that in any movie. Like, somehow, yeah, yeah. he pulls that off, and, and you believe it. He's hysterical. Like, could you imagine going in to an audition for that part and reading it like that? And you would say, thank you very much, validate your parking, and you're gone, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's Benicio Del Toro and the, the usual suspects, right? There's no one else who would think of that. Right. But so, they did, because they wrote it for him. Like, so, you, right, you can right. feel their so, confidence. So, I, I, I feel like those things... So. Again, you know, very enjoyable to watch. And, you know, in a way, the other thing is, like, because you don't know where it's going, it's like, okay, this is happening, it's fun, but you you come back to the plot, you know? So it's like, okay, I'm off on this thing, but then I come back, and it's like, okay, the money, the money. Yeah. Okay, what, the money? Oh, the toe. Oh, the, the girl. Oh, the oh that money's not fake. You know, and so really just, you know, checking in with the plot every now and then yeah. is fine. It's like know? the film sobers up and remembers. Yeah, but yeah. It, yeah, instead of becoming because the well, the, and that's what that's where it is noir because noir, as someone said, you know, wants to be. It's more about the scenes than the plot, right. and 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 the great scenes will will you know make the plot okay, but make it great, you know, make the scenes memorable, make the make the characters memorable, and that's kind of what it is. Even though again, it's a pretty broad, you know, landscape of characters. I mean, you could definitely say some are superfluous for sure, but. It almost doesn't matter because it's like, I mean, it might as well be a sketch comedy in a way, yeah, you know, yeah. where it's like, okay, I'm over here with this guy, you know, I'm hanging with the Jesus and, you know, I'm walking door to door with the Jesus. Well, I don't really care about the Jesus so much is that except you really entertain me in the thing with yeah. the, with the, the ball polishing the ball, you know, and, and, and I had a laugh and I don't know Smokey, but I know he stepped over the line, you know, and like, so I, I, I don't know, it's just those, those, uh, Characters just amuse the shit out of me. Yeah, a lot of it does feel like an extended game of yes and in the screenplay stage, where right. it's like, well, okay, but then this has to happen. Right. All right, let's do that. Right. And I'll see your insanity. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So, and then again, like I said, you 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 can l- look at it from a guy who you know the world is just coming down on him, and I think that everyone can relate to that. So, you know, you put yourself in your own life, and it's like the dude. It's like I was just hanging out. And this thing happened to me. Yeah. And whatever that thing is to you, you know, it's, there's some parallel, you know. I've got a goofy friend like Walter who doesn't have some friend, not as crazy as that, right. but, you you know, we've all got that friend, yeah. you know. So I feel like, you know, there's also relatable. Oh, you know, dude meets mod is a girl, you know, it's uh, out of out of his league. Oh, I'm going to get laid. It's like, oh. That yeah. didn't work out so well. Yes, no, exactly. So I, I, I like I feel like those little touchstones too are are kind of relatable for for anybody, you know, just in life too. So th- yeah. there's that. It's always struck me as an anti stoner film in a weird way because so many movies that involve like drug culture, drug humor, they just remind me that it is a lot less entertaining to listen to people talk about the stuff they did when they were high right. than it is to be high yourself. 
Right. Like whatever is going on is always more interesting to the people experiencing it at the moment, and then later you babble about it, which is which is kind of the thing that Lebowski avoids because of the film noir device. Right. Because we're invested in the mystery if we're not invested in them. Right. And so the second time through, you can start to understand. You warm. I like. I warmed to the characters maybe three times in. Right. The first time I was trying to understand what was happening. The right. second right. time I was appreciating the structure. It's like, oh, this is. This is doing this intentionally, and this next thing, you know, uh, um, a movie is always a better experience the second time through because some part of your brain knows what's coming. Right. Even if you don't like it, a movie yeah, seems I mean, less bad. Yeah, I, I, unless it's a you know the crying game. Well, yeah, uh, but even but then you get to experience the first forty minutes and go, oh, I see all of this stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, not necessarily better, but certainly different, and you mm-hmm. can appreciate it and. Look, uh, uh, many movies are are better the second time. Some are better the fourth and fifth, just because you get nuance that yeah. you know. Like I, I, frankly, I mean, I could watch The Shape of Water. I've seen it twenty times, and I see some new nuance every time I see it. You know, so uh, uh, and I feel like I feel that way about this movie. Is that I'll pick something up, some obscure reference. Also, now that I've read about the movie a little bit and. You know, you get some context on it, and sure, yeah. I've I've resisted ask asking Ethan and Joel any about you know I've met them a couple times yeah. now. And I I don't want to geek out on them. I well, geeked I geeked out on Julianne a little bit. <laughs> I've interviewed them a couple of times. They will not tell you anything they don't want to tell you. Right, feel free. Yeah, um, I did actually. The first time I met them was on the Serious Man Roundtables at TIFF, and somebody tried to start with a Lebowski reference, and Ethan just shut him down, and it was magnificent. Right, just somebody trying, like a younger journalist, was trying to be like it was like his first thing, and was something about I don't know, he tried to work in dude and ball, talking about a serious man, and just and Ethan just looked at him with cold eyes and said, <laughs> "That's funny," and they just left it right. hanging, and I thought. I want to applaud. I these guys have been dealing with this for ten years now. Of yeah, course, yeah, yeah, enough already. Yeah, and they don't like they they'll dig as far as they want to, but they really won't go into detail of something. Like right. the the most intricate conversation I've ever had with them was talking about how they did the process uh, backgrounds for the subway scenes in Lewin Davis, right? Because that was a challenge they were really excited about, right? But they won't talk about the Dylan stuff. I mean, they'll talk about Dave Van Bronck and they'll talk about things that are peripherally interesting. Right. And in a Serious Man, they talked about their childhood, but they kept saying, but this isn't really about us. This is about a fantastical situation. Right. They're just, like, I, I, yeah, I love their impenetrability. Right, yeah. They'll just give you what they want to give. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're smarter than everybody, so you're not going to outsmart them. Yeah. Yeah, well, and especially on that movie, which I think they probably, you know, had, you know, a very personal film. They were going to want to talk about the film. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But with Lebowski, they... I mean, they'll just say, eh, we were being silly, or, you know, this was really interesting, and we didn't know we'd get the rights to the song. But they'll, they just, like, the Gulf War thing never comes up. Right. Uh, or if it comes up, they just deflect it by saying they think the period of time is interesting. Right. But obviously it's there, so the dude will do the, this will not stand. Yeah, it's all speech. about being able to say this uh, unchecked yeah. aggression will not stand. And it's hysterical. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, it's that's... stealing a lot. Well, the uh, irony of the guy who's one of the Seattle Seven stealing a yeah. line from George W. Bush, right? Well, George Bush Sr. Or Sr. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, it's 91. Yeah, no, yeah. But then to get to that point, right, that's where the yes ending comes in because now they've ended up making a period film. Right. Uh, about only six years ago, but it's like the kind of challenge you set for yourself Self. Incidentally, I just find that fascinating. There's really no other reason the film needs to be set then. In 1991. Yeah. yeah, it yeah, just, yeah. It's just funny for that yeah. one moment. Well, you got the Saddam bowling shoe guy. Oh, that's which is true. Fun too. But yeah. that probably came after that, you know. Yeah. I, I, look, I'm sure they heard George Bush say this uh, unchecked aggression will not stand. Yeah. And we're like, how can we work it in? And that was the thin edge of the wedge, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And here it, we are. That was great in Ralph's The 69 Cent Check, written on September 11th, <laughs> yep. 1991, not to mention. That's a weird-ass movie. That is a weird-ass coincidence. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so again, yeah, I mean, they've done, it's funny with the period movies. I remember talking to Bob Graff, who produces their movies now, about um, No Country for Old Men, mm-hmm. which was set in... It's like 82 or something? Yeah, like the mid-80s, and they went and shot in West Texas, I said... It must have been tough with the cars. And he goes, no, in West Texas, all the cars are from the mid-80s. <laughs> we just used people's cars. It wasn't hard at all. Um, so, yeah, no, I, and I, I think they just probably don't care to talk about old stuff 
at all anyway they're really interested in the next thing yeah you know as i am with them i mean it just seems to get better and better i mean i think hail caesar is a major work of art i really think it's a brilliant movie in so many ways yeah so. i i love the conceptual challenge of doing production numbers for movies that don't exist but not just one like just doing yeah, a I mean, series of different styles of different, different yeah i tones. mean and casting channing because you know he can do that like he's not not only got the acting thing but I mean that anchors away oh, yeah, bar yeah. number was wow you know so I feel like yeah, yeah and as Guillermo said to me on uh, uh, this movie like what am I going to do that I haven't done you know because why would I do something I have done you look at that and you say they say to themselves okay let's go let's go and really challenge ourselves to do something that we haven't done and 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 they seem to do some version of that every time out like it doesn't feel like they're really trotting old ground. And that's where I put the greats, you know, with Guillermo and Edgar and Soderbergh we've talked about in these guys is that they're they're just constantly evolving as artists where you you know it's them without any credits. Yeah. But it's somehow different, better, more evolved. Like, you know, you're watching the growth of a major artist. And that's the interesting thing to me about yeah. all those guys. And certainly with them. I mean, it just seems to get better and better. I mean, look, there's, I mean, there's always, you know, bumps in the road. It was interesting to me watching Intolerable Cruelty, which they had originally written for someone else to right. direct, yeah. and then they ended up directing it, but it didn't feel as much of an auteur film to me as their normal thing. So uh, the fact that, you know, that distinction would exist right. even was odd to me, you know. Was, Have you seen Gambit? The one they wrote but didn't direct. It's a it's a rewrite of a '60s comedy. It's a heist picture with Colin Firth. It just it must be terrible. I assume so. I still haven't watched it. Isn't that something? But it's one of those things where you find out about it and it's like, wait, there's a lost Coen Brothers movie. Well, again, like I was so looking forward to uh, Suburbicon. Ugh, yeah. I I really was. Me too. I mean, you know, I I, I like the material. I love the cast. I think Clooney's a pretty good director. Yep. Uh, they're obviously good writers, and it's like, what the fuck happened there? So, I don't know. Yeah. It's 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 all very strange, but I I, I, I just, I love, the, I love the development, and you could see it right from the beginning. I mean, you could see it from Blood Simple. They grabbed you, and, you know, there's the odd, you know, chance that they've taken along the way that maybe didn't land, you know, quite the same with, you know, any of us based on personal taste. Sure. But the body of work is just, you know, it's uh, it's staggering. It's yeah. exceptional. And by the way, not big budget guys. Like, like really, you know, uh, uh, very responsible. And again, guys who want to keep control by not uh, not spending too much money where yeah. they're pulling attention, you know. And, and I love that, you know. Because basically, I think with them, it's like, look, just give us the money and don't talk to us and yeah. we'll give you the movie. Like, good idea. And we're not interested in notes. You know, we can, we're, we're casting magnets. Like yeah, we we'll can get, get stars. We'll get, get we'll get anybody because they know everyone wants to work with them or whether they know it or not, the actors do. And, you know, c consistently, you know, they've got the, you know, the biggest uh, uh, actors. So I admire that part of it, that they want to keep it small and they're not, you know, prone to uh, uh, excess that way, which is, you know, easy to do. It's yeah. easy to go in that direction. And by the way, the fact that, I heard that Hail Caesar was like $23 million or something like that, or under 25 Mind-boggling to me. Yeah, I thought it was closer to 40 50 It looks like It's it. expensive. You know, it's like we're getting that a lot with our movie right now. Uh, but, you know, uh, I just couldn't be more impressed. Now, you know, I mean, that, that Big, Big Lebowski is a different story a long time ago, but I think it was not an expensive movie. Yeah, so. no, it wouldn't have been. And... and was it still Gramercy at the time, or was it one of the early Focus ones? Uh, they would have they would have banked on it. Uh, it was Gramercy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They put out some really interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, and they've worked around the edges that way too. I mean, they do a lot of their movies with working title, so whether it's in the Universal deal or they've been all over. And I think anyone's happy to release any of their movies because I think most of their movies are probably going to do pretty well at the end of the day. They've got they've got a pretty loyal following. So. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Um, I've never been to one of those shows, the 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 uh, Big Lebowski. Uh, the live shows. The, the gatherings. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't imagine it would be. I don't it think feels it feels a little inside. Yeah, I don't think I would want to go there. It, yeah. It's like, it's becoming a cult, or it is a cult now at this point. Right. Um, and 
I, it's just not. Yeah, it's not something I want to be part of, really. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm much happier, as you can tell, appreciating films in the sanctity of my own little box. Yes, yeah, I can see that. Uh, and it's better with your with your wood stove fired up. It's better for everyone. Oh, it's gas. It's fake. Oh, it's, okay. Oh, yeah. That's. I think I've got that same remote. Yeah, everything's yeah. fake. But before the construction overwhelms us completely, I, I can ask uh, the closing question on the podcast, which is. You know, is there anything of the Big Lebowski that you have stolen or borrowed or incorporated into your own creative DNA? I mean, it, does it influence you in any way? No, I think it's just it. It so tracks with my sense of humor right. that uh, I quote lines all over the place in various contexts. Some of which people get m- many times. It's only to amuse myself, such as. <laughs> Again, you know, with with, with when There's someone dies, and I ask them about the, the the urn for the that their father's going to be put in. <laughs> so I, I'm really skirting trouble with a lot of that stuff. But no, I wouldn't say I've I've, I've you know stolen anything. But I uh, uh, more than anything, it just uh, uh, it continues to make me laugh, and uh, it continues to. Um, uh, inspire me to try and do that kind of a movie. I actually would, you know, I've directed uh, a lot of TV and a, uh, and one film, and people ask me what kind of film I want to do, and I said I, I'm actually looking to do uh, a black comedy. So you know, that's the script I'm looking for and thinking about because I feel like that's that is my wheelhouse. Um, I mean, certainly I'm 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 not going to be able to get to that level, but it's the kind of thing that you know inspires me to. Um, uh, try and do something like that you know that's a because i just feel like tonally it's in its own world and 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 it's an underserved kind of niche the the good dark you know and black comedies yeah i was as you're saying that i'm thinking is there anything you could describe like i don't think you could point to another movie and say oh it's like the big lebowski i i get what you mean it's a vibe more than anything but i think if you if someone tries to come out and replicate this, it'll be a disaster. It'll be can't do it. Yeah, it's like a it's like a brick wall. You can't break through it and copy pieces of it. But the idea of it, the influence of it, like to be as weird or as funny as freewheeling, there. Are, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff you can glom onto. You just could never make another one. Right. Well, you know, screwball comedies. Like for example, another movie that I would have been happy to come here and talk about is it's a mad mad world. Oh yeah. Right. So again, you take that thing where okay, there's a there's a plot, sure, but now you know I'm off in a garage with Jonathan Winters being tied up, and you know just all these wacky situations yeah. that are that are are kind of funny and 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 with characters. So again, that's that's not it's it's a different movie, but it's kind of the same thing where you know it's a it's a it's a, a sprawling kind of screwball comedy that that is its own thing. Um, and I think actually would be a worthy movie to examine based on you know what Kramer had done previously oh, yeah, and what like he did after. It's such it. a standalone for him. And it's such, it's. I mean, I'm trying to think of a key moment, and it's just chaos in my head. It's just people running around, screaming and yelling, and driving cars, With the driving and the flying planes, yeah. and, and, it just, and everything. And it keeps adding instead of subtracting. Like it's it it is it's a snowball, right? It starts yeah. small and then becomes an avalanche. But yeah. yeah, no, Kramer was such a, a, a kind of a quietly self-important filmmaker who dealt with real issues and social justice and yeah. and and morality plays, and then just in the middle of it all, you know, right. this right. What you don't think I can make a comedy? Yeah, that was the one I like. You know, someone's like, "No, Stanley, you don't want to do that. You don't do that." It's like, "Yeah, okay, give me a minute," and then you know, back to whatever his last few words. Judgment were. at Nuremberg. <laughs> yeah, Judgment at Nuremberg. Inherit the wind. This. Mad Mad World. You know, the, the, that was another movie that really inspired me. You know, I mean, that was that was an epic movie. Um, sure. Yeah. And actually, speaking of laser discs, I've got that laser disc um, with, with the full the Cinerama cut, the Cinerama cut with the four minute uh, overture at right. the beginning, which is incredible. I think I might have that too. See, so, do you? I may be in there. I can't see. It's like four discs or something. I remember it's a it was lot. A huge box set from MGM. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really good. So actually, those are the kinds of things that that I actually pull the laser to stuff. But you know, so those kinds of things, you know, are in fact, you know, I'm going to get you a copy of Enter Laughing. I will send it to you. I'll find my DVD and I'll make a copy because you will die. I mean, seriously. I mean, it's, it's Reiner. Just post Dick Van Dyke show, yeah. so he's done Sid Caesar, 
He's done two thousand all the Mel Brooks stuff. Right. He's done Dick Van Dyke, and now this is his first movie. And then it was a while till the next one. Till I think the Steve Martin movie. Yeah, he didn't been, direct. The Jerk might have been the years. next one. Yeah. But anyway, it, it, it you will like it. I mean, I think you'll like it. Um, I particularly know your sense of humor, but I think you will like it. Uh, Jose Ferrer, Elaine May. Yeah, it's really good. Really good cast. Yeah, when you were telling me about it, it's like everyone is in this. It would be a time capsule of that other wave of, of comedy that just didn't quite kick over into film, right? From the early age of television. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And Reiner. Do you see the comedians in Cars with Coffee with him and uh, Mel Brooks? You know what? I don't know that I have now. It's the best one. It's, okay. it's basically, Seinfeld picks Carl Reiner up. They go to Nate and Al's deli in, in L.A. and pick up some food, and then they go to Mel's house and sit in front of TV tray tables where, because both the wives are dead, you know, he goes there every night. Yeah, and they no, just they sit hang out and together. I definitely and, have not seen and this. It's, it's so cute, those guys Ugh. who are going to be gone soon. I'm sure they're both Never. in their 90s now. Never. Yeah, they're close. Well, um, now I'm depressed. Why? Well, because I can't imagine a world without I know, and Carl Reiner. I know. Well, it won't be because you'll yeah, always have 2001 year old man to listen to. 2000 year old man. Yeah. Um, and we'll always have the Big Lebowski, and the same by the same token to just be impenetrable and fascinating and weird. Yeah. Someday that'll be old, inexplicable, it's weird too. Yeah, old exactly. So yeah, let it live on. The dude abides. <laughs> He kind of has to. The dude abides. My thanks to J. Miles Dale, who's probably back in Toronto already working on his next thing. If you haven't caught up to The Shape of Water yet, please try to see it in the theater. But if it's not possible, it is available on iTunes and Google Play right now. And 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment releases it on 4K, Blu-ray, and DVD next Tuesday, March 13th. It won Best Picture. It won Best Picture. What a world. You can find Miles on Twitter at MiloFX1. M-I-L-O-F-X, number one. And you can find The Big Lebowski on Blu-ray and DVD from Universal Studios Home Entertainment in an appropriately eccentric special edition. It is also available on iTunes and Google Play. Oh, and it turns out that Gambit, written by the Coens, directed by Michael Hoffman, and starring Colin Firth and Cameron Diaz in roles originally played by Michael Caine and Shirley MacLaine, is on iTunes as well, if you're feeling adventurous. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast. S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. The Dude Abides. The Fishman says hi.